0: Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be covering a sermon by Dr. James DeWesel, and this is an interesting guy. I bought one of his books, and he is really interested in the very meticulous details of metaphysics, and so he's not like your normal Calvinist. He's not like your normal Arminian who who uses words like knowledge, and then they kind of, you know, use use alternative definitions and the audience doesn't quite know what they actually mean when they're using that those words but this guy this guy cares this guy's very academic in his treatment of God's attributes and that's what I like about him he on this his face value he's being honest he's being straightforward he defines what he means he explains it in detail and he's a negative theologian don't get me wrong it, it's just it, it's pure platonism which he talks about but he cares about it enough to explain it accurately, and I like the guy. He's very charismatic. You you watch his videos on YouTube, and he seems like a genuine guy. And I suspect, I suspect, if I ever had him as a guest on this podcast, we'd have a very amiable conversation. Would probably talk about what exactly it means uh, God's omniscience, and he would be straightforward and say exactly the things that I've been saying about how they take God's knowledge. You know, people might think I'm just making it up or whatever. Oh, they don't think God's knowledge is pure actuality, identical to his self-being. Well, yeah, that's what they believe. And this guy, he, he actually points it out. This is the guy also quoted on immutability. Remember that Calvinist podcast that, uh, what what was it? It was, uh, it was something uh, where the guy, he said that, Oh, open theists say that, uh, you know, that Calvinists don't think God actually has emotions. And this guy's a Calvinist, this uh, James Dwezel, And in his podcast, he, or in one of his uh, interviews about God's immutability, he's like, yeah, God doesn't actually have actual emotions. And so <laughs> it's funny. So you got the, these lightweight Calvinists, you don't know what the heck they're talking about. They, they don't understand their own metaphysics. And then you got uh, people like James Duesel, so I like him. Um, I think I think he's a worthwhile to quote and to listen to, and he's a pretty good authority on the subject of metaphysics. But but with that being st- stated, it's not biblical theology, and we'll kind of see how he uses the Bible, and he uses it in a not very—it's kind of a forced manner, and that's that's what you'd expect people coming to the Bible with their negative theology. And of course, by negative theology, we mean theology that distances God from creation, that God cannot be related to creation. It's negative theology. God is only spoken about in abstracts because he's incomprehensible and infinite. And you'll kind of hear some of these themes in this sermon. We're not going to be able to cover all the sermon today, But uh, we'll go
1: as far as we can and just see what he says and how he says it. We've been touching on in Sunday school uh, and this morning, uh, the last couple of times we've talked about God's uh, eternity and his omnipresence. Uh, Today, I want us to consider the doctrine of God's omniscience. Uh, I'll take just as a a text for a point of departure, Psalm 147, 5, where we read these words, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength, his understanding is infinite, or uh, more literally uh, innumerable, without, without number. It's not quantifiable. Um, so when we say that God is omniscient, we don't mean that there's this vast sum of knowledge that God has.
0: All right, so let's talk real quick about his proof text. And he's talking about God's understanding is infinite. And in in the ancient world, God's had to have various attributes in order to function. Knowledge was one of those attributes and understanding ability to process that knowledge. That's a separate attribute. They're not the same things. And so this is not quite an omniscience proof text. It's not talking about the extent of God's knowledge. This is talking about how God processes and understands and uses his, his, his knowledge. That's what this is about. And, Contextually, it says his knowledge is infinite. Yeah, and sure, that's it's kind of like a hyperbolic uh, number. And the same wording is used for the amount of grain that Joseph collects for Pharaoh. And this is not like an incomprehensible number of grain. Well, we, we might not be able to count it very well because grain's kind of small and you see a ton of grain coming in. So it's like, well, that's just a, like an infinite, countless amount of grain. But you, you can't jump, you can't just assume the metaphysics, onto this infinite understanding. You can't assume perfect perfection, pure actuality that is in no way related, size, shape, or form to man, how man understands stuff. You just don't get that from the verse. You don't get that from the context. And it very well could be used in the same hyperbolic sense that that Joseph collects the grain. And remember, people interact with God in the Bible. And often the outcome is favorable towards man. And, you know, God says, okay, you got a good point. So so, what are, what are we talking about here? Does this verse mean quite how he uses it? And and he'll go on. He's just adding this as an intro, trying to pique people's interest. And it's his assumptions on this verse are very
1: forced. Uh, what we mean is that God's knowledge is not the kind of thing that is susceptible to enumeration. Okay, so, so Nasby renders it sort of idiomatically. His understanding is infinite, which I think is actually getting at the sense of it, which is to say, it's an un, It's there's an unboundedness in his knowing. Um, confession
0: chapter. So that wasn't a textual analysis. That was James DeWezel saying, "This is what God should be like." And here's a verse. And here's how I think this verse should best be read. To conform with my image of what God should be like, it's not—it's not a context-driven interpretation. And he might—he might even admit that if we had him on and talked to him about about how he gets his theology from these verses, he might admit it's not contextual. It has to be assumed onto the text. But but see how he uses omniscience. Omniscience isn't just a sum total of knowledge. It's not like I have all these facts in my head. And uh, man has facts in their head, but it's just not the same number of facts that God has in his head. So James Duesel says, it's not that type of knowledge. You're not comparing that type of knowledge to God's knowledge. God's knowledge is not innumerable. God's knowledge is infinite. God's knowledge is, is identical to his being. And it's this, it's this wholly other uh, type of knowledge. It's, it's, not, it's not comparable with how we know stuff.
1: 2, both paragraph 1 and paragraph 2 have something to say about God's knowledge. Uh, This is page 671 in the back of the hymnal, if you want to see what I'm looking at. Um, Let me read uh, the first half of of chapter, or of section 1, and then I'll read uh, at least section 2 up to the point on knowledge. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection. Um, let's just let that kind of frame what we're going to say. We're going to say some things about different attributes, but infinite in being and perfection. Whatever it is for God to have these attributes, it's not in the manner that finite things have them. Uh, he goes on, whose essence cannot be, the confession, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. So we begin, if I can say, this is the first statement about God's knowledge Uh in Confession, Chapter 2, and it's a statement about his self-knowledge, a statement about his own self-comprehension. When we talked about incomprehensibility some time back, we made the point that when we say incomprehensibility, we don't mean in an absolute sense, we mean incomprehensible to the creature, incomprehensible to all who are not God, but comprehensible to himself, of course. God's knowledge uh, is as deep in God as God's being. We'll, We'll talk about that a little bit later.
0: So what he's quoting here is it looks like uh, the 1689 Baptist Confession, chapter two, and that's where he's getting all this stuff. So this this is not like an early Christian document from the first century. It's it's these these confessions that were made up by men, you know, well after the time of Jesus, about concerns that aren't at, at all biblical and uh, just completely foreign to the Bible. It's it's interesting. He treats it as authoritative. And yeah, I understand it fits the theology he likes, and he likes how his metaphysics works together, and he's created a system in his mind that works. And, you know, I could understand his attachment to that, and I don't fault him for that. Just, Just his misuse of verses to to proof text his theology that's that's where i would be taking issue
1: Um, so we first begin with god's knowledge of self-comprehension infinite knowledge knows infinite being Uh, it goes on a most pure spirit invisible without body parts or passions who only hath immortality dwelling in the light into uh, uh, which no man can approach unto who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite. Uh, Infinity and incomprehensibility just keep sort of poking their heads up, you know, as you go through the confession, again, reminding you, uh, so you you never get too far away from that. Most holy, and then this statement with regard to his knowledge, most wise, most free, most absolute. Then it goes on to talk about the counsel of his will. Down to section 2. God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his glory in, by, unto, and upon them.
0: Yeah, does that sound biblical? It doesn't sound biblical to me. In the Psalms, people bargain with God. They say, if you save me alive, I will glorify you. Right? God gets things from people, and there's an interaction. God brings the animals to Adam to see what he would call them. God's gaining knowledge, and he's satisfying curiosity. And really, everything that we just read there from that Baptist confession is just just Platonism. It's, it's this idea that God has to be wholly other, and uh, he's incomprehensible, and he's uh, pure actuality and immutable in his essence he can't change or or do anything and this it's the platonic dissension It's the platonic outlook of the world and remember this was pretty vogue right after the time of christ so it's it's just interesting how how the two christianity and platonism melded because nothing that you're hearing here is biblical it's not it's not found in the bible and the proof text they have like like he stated earlier Nothing in the context explains how that meets his definition of uh, immutability, all his metaphysics, and you have to point to these really strange doctrines and and uh, and works that are outside of the Bible, outside of the time frame where the biblical authors read or would be able to give direct input onto these people who are shaping Christianity. It's it's just it's just weird to me how this is where Christianity is. This, This is the state of Christianity that we're believing in these. You're believing that the Bible has these
1: weird claims in it. It doesn't, it doesn't. I know that's a mouthful, but basically all that God is in himself, he is by virtue of himself. So that whatever is in God is not the consequent of something acting on God, but rather all that is in God is because of God's Godness.
0: Right, so that applies to everything, even God's knowledge. We can't give God knowledge. Like when the Psalms describe God in heaven watching the actions of man, God can't actually be in heaven gaining knowledge. Any gain of knowledge would uh, defy his immutable, perfect perfection essence. And there's there can be no changes, no affection of uh creatures towards God the creatures cannot affect God God cannot be changed or influenced by the outside God can't revel in glory that creatures give him God cannot be affected and is in and of himself a perfect uh, divine pure essence that can't change
1: so when we say if you I think I think we talked about if not formally we have at least alluded to it this doctrine of osseity. Uh, that God is a say He is of himself. So anything we say God is is ultimately explained uh, in terms of god 's own godness, not in, not in terms of something else that 's causing or moving him to that being. Um, and then he talks about creatures. well, what about giving God glory? doesn't he get that from us? And so it attacks that first and says no, in fact. When we glorify God, we don't give to Him a glory He lacked prior to our glorifying Him. Our, our glorifying Him is is more like uh, reflecting and broadcasting, not adding um, or giving or giving newness to. Um, so He He manifests His glory upon them. He alone being the fountain of all being, of whom through whom and to whom are all things. Uh, taken from Romans eleven thirty six, He hath most. Sovereign yeah,
0: does, is that what it means, that a pure actuality, pure ACD, uh, God can't be affected by anything? Is that is that what that means? A, is Or, or there are there better ways to take that? That's that's not
1: negative theology, right? ...sovereign dominion over all creatures, to do by them, for them, and upon them whatsoever he pleaseth. And then it gets into this, and then it, then it drills more deeply into this whole thing of knowledge. And I'll... We'll... Yes, it sounds more like a
0: kingship proof text to me rather than pure actuality, uh, infinite nature. Uh, their proof texts don't really line up to what they're trying to prove. They're trying to
1: prove too much with too little. We'll get into some text in a few moments. It says, in his sight, all things are open and manifest. And you can probably think of some texts. We'll look at a couple in a second. Psalm 139, uh, to be sure, would be a text that says this. Uh uh, uh Hebrews four, among others, uh, talk about talk about God. No, nothing is in the dark with respect to God. Everything at so far as it stands before God is done in the in the light of day in full exposure. Uh, except for things can't stand before God
0: because things can't affect God. And so maybe you might want to rephrase that a little bit. The knowledge that God has is inherent in his being and identical to his essence and existed long before anything else existed, existed timelessly with God in this uh, other realm, this realm of the one in the Platonism, right? That's the realm of the one. And so, uh, you know, some of his language could be changed a little bit to closer mirror his actual beliefs. Nothing stands before God. Nothing's open before God. The, the knowledge is, can't affect God, so you can't stand open before God, can you? Because that would be a relationship to God, and we can't do that. We can't put a relationship with God.
1: Then the Confession does something interesting, and it says a few um, perhaps challenging things about God's knowledge. It, it gets into this question of not just what God knows, and when we talk about omniscience We often, everyone who affirms omniscience is willing to ascribe some kind of indescribable scope to God's knowledge, but the confession, the next statement that it makes is not so much talking about scope in terms of how much God knows, it makes a statement about how God knows, um, the way in which He knows. So,
0: that's very, very important. Very important, and we try to stress that on this podcast because often in the Bible, not only will it talk about what God knows, but also talk about how He knows it. And so let's let's see what He says here, and He's going to get to the core of the issue, an uh, issue that I have with a lot of Calvinists. They don't they don't think about the attributes that they ascribe to God. They don't think about the mechanics of how it works, and they don't, and they they want their cake and to eat it too.
1: The interest here in this next phrase is not so much with the breadth of his knowledge, so to speak, but with the manner of his knowing. Um, And so it says, his knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. It's a little strange, this independent upon the creature. So he knows the creature, but he doesn't depend upon the creature for his knowing. Okay? That just isn't said. We can't say that about anyone else. Um, so the manner of his knowing is independent. It's like the manner of his being. It's all say, um, infinite, in, infallible, independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, because there's nothing that lies, as it were, in the shadowy periphery of God's knowledge. There's not that unaccounted-for thing. Uh, and part of the reason for this is because god isn't actually getting his knowledge of creatures from creatures um now this is gonna see yeah check that out that's exactly what i've been saying uh, let me just throw this out there in case it's already popped in your head this is going to challenge us somewhat with the way in which we have to handle ordinary the ordinary talk of the bible when it talks about god as perceiving hearing discovering finding out uh, Remembering, uh, saying things like "Now I know." <laughs> Did he not know previous? Is this a new knowledge? You know. Th- yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what the point of the text is. So there's a there's a sense in which, if we can biblically establish that the confession is right when it says that God's knowledge is independent upon the creature, why does the Bible so often and prolifically talk about God's knowledge like it is dependent upon the creature? <laughs> That's a good question all right um, I think we I think this is the I think the, the confession gives us a lot to work on uh, in terms of how we're going to interpret and handle scripture and is this is this anthropomorphic talk and if it's anthropomorphic is it, is it not telling us and revealing to us something true about God and his knowledge even if under a form or a mode of, of learning that isn't proper to him that kind of thing um, we'll, we'll drill I, I don't promise to answer all yeah, you see why I like this guy? I like this guy. ...questions on that, but at least just to explore how we might handle a few of those. Um, good, and then it goes back to his counsel and his works, uh, so we'll, we'll leave it with that. So we talk about both that God is all wise, God's first and primary act of knowledge is an act of self-knowledge, comprehending his own self, uh, and then knowing everything else, uh, infinitely, infallibly, independently of those things. Uh, what is that kind of knowledge? We'll, we'll get into a bit of that. All right, so just letting that kind of get a few categories uh, floating around before we put them in place. Wilhelmus O'Brockal says this in his very brief definition of the knowledge of God. And if you know these Sunday school classes, I'm often referring to Wilhelmus O'Brockal. And I'm not, I'm not saying you must, but the only book you must Read as the Bible, but uh, if you want to, if you want to do, uh... <laughs> I, that'd be so funny. If this guy only had the Bible
0: his entire life, nothing that he's taught today would be like on his mind. He he, he wouldn't have any of these ideas. It's all extra biblical philosophy that he's bringing to the text that you can nowhere assume out of the text of the Bible. Maybe you could. There's a lot of weird cults going around claiming strange things in the Bible, but. You know, normal reading comprehension would show uh, n- nothing what he's talking about is
1: described in the Bible. Do something useful in terms of your reading. It's, it's kind of ambitious and it's big, but any time spent in Wilhelmus of Brockles' uh, volumes, The Christian's Reasonable Service, is time well spent. He's, he's very careful and precise. He says, The knowledge of God neither has its origin in the creature, nor does it flow from the creature to God. Rather, it flows from God himself to the creature.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. everything I've been saying. I, all Every time I talk about omniscience, this is the type of omniscience that Calvinism requires. Knowledge that is inherent in God's essence and can't flow from the creature to God or else God would not be immutable. God would be, his knowledge would be dependent. He'd be to he create relationships and that challenges God's infinite nature. Uh,
1: this is... This is basically what our confession says when it says it's independent upon the creature. Um, if we were to define the doctrine of divine knowledge, and I'm, we can say omniscience, uh, and that's, that's a word that maybe we're more familiar with, but just, let's just call this the doctrine of divine knowledge. God's knowledge is that perfection by which God, in an entirely unique manner, uh, in, a, in a way of knowing that is for God alone, in an entirely unique manner, knows himself and all things possible and actual in one simple and eternal act. I know that's a mouthful, but I try to get it all uh, on my paper. It's less than two full lines. So I felt like that was fair. Um, The perfection by which God in an entirely unique manner knows himself and all things possible and actual in one simple and eternal act.
0: Um, I would love that if Calvinists started using that as their, as their default definition of what they mean by omniscience, because, None of the proof texts talk to that. And, you know, that's every single little detail they add like that. They do this Moat and Bailey thing. If if you're familiar with the Moat and Bailey argument, it's like you make these broad, absurd claims. And then when it's challenged, you retreat back to a more defensible claim. So they'll say God's knowledge is pure perfection and he can't be influenced by his creatures and gain knowledge from observation and stuff like that. And so then someone will say, well, the Bible doesn't have that. And they'll jump back to these proof texts and say, see, these proof texts show God's omniscience, that God knows all things. Well, that's not the claim that you were making. You're trying to defend a more defensible claim about the overall scope of God's knowledge. But your, your real claims are a lot larger than that. So try to defend your larger claims. And a lot of people they they don't do that I don't know if this guy does I have this is my first time listening to this so I'm listening to this with you and so far it's pretty good and this this guy I, I would listen if, if you're interested in this type of stuff uh, negative theology this this is your go-to guy for it all his sermons his books uh, they're very detailed and it's it's pretty mainstream understanding of metaphysics and if Calvinists, if they say that this guy's wrong, Calvinists don't understand their own theology. This, this, is, this is the legit stuff
1: here. Maybe just quickly say I mean, that what we mean is that when we, say, when we speak of God's knowledge, we're not talking about an acquired kind of knowledge. We're not talking about learning. We're not talking about a syllogism that God thinks through. God doesn't work his way from major premise, premises through a series of minor premises to conclusions. Um, God doesn't get to the end of knowledge having begun without it. Um, okay. I always, always like to say, yes, we are to imitate God and to be like God. Uh, and then when I tell my students, um, God doesn't think through things, you know, they think, good, I'm off the hook. <laughs> How do you imitate a perfect perfection,
0: immutable being that has no desires and no parts and is pure simplicity? I Uh, Maybe uh, I could do maybe maybe like watching a really terrible Netflix show. Maybe that maybe that might do maybe watching like an Amy Schumer comedy routine where you're sitting there like a dense rock just absorbing this just utter garbage and nothing could be acted on you and you're in like comatose. Maybe that is imitating this uh, pure simplicity immutability. But it's funny. People are like, oh, Jesus is God, but God is immutable, pure simplicity. And if you look at Jesus, you see God. Well, in what way? In what, in what way, when you look at Jesus, do you see God? In, in your th- weird theology. And I legit had a Calvinist say, I don't know. I don't know how Jesus could say, if you see me, then you see the Father, because <laughs> nothing. There's, there's no commonalities between what this guy's talking about God and Jesus that we see in the Bible. There's no commonalities.
1: You know, okay. that's not what we mean when we say that we're to imitate uh, God. You're not to imitate, we're not imitating infinity. Um, we're imitating in that creaturely way uh, those those virtues of God's perfection and excellence. All right, we already started uh, with a brief look at uh, the Psalm 147.5 passage. If you want sort of a, a good solid proof text for omniscience, I would say Psalm 147.5 is, is a great place to go. Uh 1 John 3, 20, um, starting in verse 19, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him and whatever our heart condemns us for God is greater than our heart and then it says, and knows all things. God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Uh, in this case, of course, the thing he knows uh, perfectly is you. So stop, stop stop, the tape, stop the
0: tape, okay. So God knows all things. So does that prove exactly what he just talked to us about? Perfect omniscience, where God can't gain any information from any sort of possible way. And, and uh, it's pure perfection. And it's a, it's a once act that's timeless in essence and uh, internally derived. Is, does that proof text prove that? Guess what? Guess who else was said to know all things? Jesus was, even though Jesus didn't know the time and the day uh, you know, Mark 13 was it Mark 13:36 he doesn't know the time and the day of the return. What th- this language is it's when it's used it's we see plenty of examples of it being hyperbolic. King David is said to know all things and so there's good precedence that this is it, it doesn't mean perfect Platonistic metaphysics, it doesn't mean, platonistic omniscience that's pure act and identical to god's essence there's nothing in context that suggests that and we have plenty of, of other other contexts that show that it's not used in that type of way so so my problem with what he's saying here is his proof texts are kind of contrived there's nothing in the immediate context that supports his take on this it, it, it's not a good proof text for what he's trying to prove it would be a good proof text for the open theists their their idea that god generally knows everything that happens on earth and that and th- this general knowledge is used throughout the bible king david sa- is said to know all things the king of tear says to know all secrets of the heart and you know it, how do you distinguish how how do you distinguish In first John what that what type of knowledge it's talking about or are you just assuming it and if you're assuming it why are you using it as your proof text the only conceivable reason is you're desperate for proof texts, and this best fits what you're trying to force into the text and it's pretty bad at that so it just tells you that they don't have actual biblical support when their proof texts are this poor
1: So that, you know, we tend to think that we know ourselves better than anyone else knows us. And there's a truth to that. You know, Proverbs says the heart of man is deep, is is like deep waters. And, and only a wise man can pull out what is deep in the heart of man.
0: So he, he referenced Psalms 139 earlier in this uh, sermon. And towards the end of it, King David says, try my heart and know if there's any evil in me. And throughout the Bible we have this con- consistent testing of hearts. God tests to see. And that's how he knows what's in the heart. Does th- this this verse in 1st John doesn't necessarily mean that he just has this inherent knowledge from all eternity of everyone's hearts. I d- I don't think 1st John is contradicting King David in Psalms 139 how King David Says that God knows the hearts through testing. I don't think that it's like that. I think First John is more likely to be drawing on this Old Testament concept that God tests the hearts to know the hearts, and you know, even if we're denying ourselves, God knows the hearts because He's He's done these tests in order to know that. I think that's a more probable explanation of what's going on here than this uh, absolute Platonic. A metaphysics that's not, it's not described in these verses. So, where do you get, get off using this as your proof text? I, I, don't, I don't see where the context even,
1: even supports your ideas. Man. Man can be an enigma to himself. Now, you, are, you know more about yourself than the rest of us. You've got stuff in the basement, so to speak, um, that you know is there and we don't. Okay? So, let's talk about the Gulag. Archipelago. I've been
0: reading this book, and this book is about this. In Soviet Russia, they they murdered they murdered upwards of sixty million of their own people. That's a lot of people. And Jordan Peterson, he's a professor of philosophy, and he references this book often. And you know, I'm a fan of him as well. But one thing he tries to teach his students is that if they lived in Nazi Germany or in Soviet Russia they would have been collaborators, even though they might not think that's how they would have acted. And there's also an abortion video that uh, put out by, I believe, Ray Comfort that quizzes Americans on, you know, how far would you go? Would you drive the truck that goes over the bodies, that buries the people alive? You know, it, 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 it explores these things. But so sometimes people and they—they they of course they don't know their the own depths of what they are capable of, but believe you me, if you were in communist Russia, and uh, you know it's a it's a secret state society when everyone's informing on each other and no one's rising up and everyone's uh, hiding in their rooms and they're afraid of being condemned themselves and just millions of people are being drug out into the streets, they're shot, they're th- thrown in gulags, they're just eliminated there's massive torture go go on youtube and uh, google the gulag archipelago and there there's an audiobook of this book and it's 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 horrific horrific and one of the things the author tries to point out is that any one of us could have been those uh, tr- torturers any one of us could have been those people interviewing he talks about how the absolute power corrupts he talks about how the system corrupts individuals. And we also talked earlier on this podcast, in a previous podcast, about the censors, which was a fictional story, but it explored these same themes. And so, yeah, we might not know ourselves as well as other people know the capabilities of human beings, what human beings would do. And I, I am apt to say that most Americans don't understand human nature. They don't understand how reality works and they don't understand what they're truly capable of in in different circumstances. They would have been the Nazis, they would have been the Soviet informants, the Soviet torturers, the you know, just in Pol Pot's regime in in, in Maoist China, they would have been murdering other people. It's it's human nature. So so what's he trying to say? James Doelzel, uh, he's trying to say that we know our ourselves better than anyone else <laughs> i don't think so i don't think so i don't i think your point's a little lost on me
1: um, so there's a sense in which you have a kind of privileged access to the knowledge of yourself um, but there's still a, and i'll talk about this in a few moments but there's still a sense in which you are a great mystery even to yourself an enigma to yourself and this is This is due to two things. Uh, It can be due uh, maybe obviously to sin, which uh, tempts, which obscures our knowledge, which plunges us into a kind of darkness and a self-unawareness that makes us tell ourselves lies about ourselves in order to excuse ourselves. All right. So he's
0: picking up on it. I might have been a little too critical earlier on. Of course, this is my first time. Listening to this podcast with you, I might have been overly critical. He he might he might be getting the point. I
1: mean, so sin can obviously obscure and darken our self knowledge, um, but also finitude does this. Uh, even if there had, I know it's it it's always dangerous to talk about if there had been no fall, uh, and theorize about what things would have what it would have been like. But I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, if there had been no fall, you would still be a finite knower. You would still be one who. Would have, to learn, would have to learn and acquire knowledge of the amazing yet finite world that God created, even, even the complexities of your own self. Adam, prior to the fall, did not have, I, I want to conjecture, did not have a perfect knowledge even of, like, say, anatomy and physiology. Um, are we to think that Adam, before the fall, knew what the appendix was for? I mean, we're only just now, like, only in, like, the last, 10 or 20 years actually getting some scientific theories that might be plausible on what the function of the appendix is in your you know, that thing that looks like a red-hot chili pepper and sometimes gets inflamed and you've to get it out. Okay, or We just think that prior to the fall, Adam had perfect self-knowledge, therefore he understood the, the why and the wherefore of, everyth- you know, of everything, including his own body. Um, so there's a sense in which when we say that God knows, uh, you know, that we know our hearts, but that God is greater than our hearts and knows all things, even that thing to which you have most privileged access, your own... Not
0: most privileged access right so i think people who are pretty fluent in history might have a better access to the depths of your heart than
1: than you might i'm just throwing out that that out there as a possibility self even here uh, god's knowledge if i can say it this way god's knowledge puts your knowledge in the shade um, his is all light yours is still that admixture of, of light and darkness Yeah. So let's, let's just assume everything he said
0: is true. Does that prove eternal knowledge in one act from this divine simplicity from all eternity? It does nothing of the sort. It has nothing to do with future omniscience of all things. It's just a present knowledge of the heart is being described and it doesn't describe the mechanisms, how God knows what he knows. And if we're going to be using the biblical evidence and the biblical witness as precedents for this type of knowledge, it'd be through testing. But it's not, he's not going to explore that because he's he either is unaware of it. And often people, when they're so stuck in their own theology that, and their worldviews that they build up, they don't explore other possibilities and probabilities. And they, they see their system. They like their system. And it's almost like a cognitive dissidence where they don't they they want to just gloss over things that will throw a wrench into their system.
1: Um, Elihu, you know you know that he's one of my favorite doctrine of God theologians.
0: <laughs> oh no, oh okay, he's a bad guy. He is a bad guy. All Job's friends are bad guys. And Elihu is just like a mini-me of the other three Job's friends. And a lot of people talk about Elihu as he's in a later addition to the text. And it might be misplaced in the text of Job. But he's never confirmed as having correct theology. And he's and he's still blaming Job. And his doctrines... All, all bad it's just echoing his friends and god condemns the friends the other friends and elihu's just ignored in the text besides elihu's own speech so oh this is your favorite guy oh uh, if you're going to pick let's say at random you're, you're going to pick someone's narrative out of out of all of job that you're going to identify with the safest the safest one is going to be job right because god talks that job spoke of god what is right unlike the friends job's the only one that gets positive affirmation of course god says that job is speaking without knowledge but that's not saying what he's claiming is incorrect it is probably more of he doesn't have the standing to comment on the events that are happening and
1: so, oh, don't identify with Elihu. Don't do it. Uh, because I'm always going to. I'm always. I find myself increasingly going to Elihu. Um, maybe it's just the poetic form of that part of of Job. Don't do it. Don't do it. Job, uh, that just allows the the statements to be so to be so pithy uh, and to the point. Uh, and note in Job, none,
0: none of these people in Job are negative theologians. Yeah, you got the Calvinist, that everything happens for a reason, and, and you must have sinned, and so so what's happening is, is a result of your sin, and they're just like the Pharisees that approached Jesus. But none of these guys, what it boils down to it, none of them were negative theologians. God is timeless, eternal, outside of time, in pure actuality, and, and he's just... Everything that happens has been eternally faded from, from before time even began. None of them are like that. Even though the friends are a little bit more Calvinistic than Job, none of them have that perception of God. They're, all their perception of God is God responds in real time as events happen.
1: So that's just, that's just an aside. Job 37, verse 16. Uh, I'll start up a couple verses. Verse 14. Listen to this, O Job. Stand and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God establishes them and makes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds? And then it says the wonders of the one perfect in knowledge. (laughs) The wonders of the one perfect in knowledge.
0: (laughs) What? What? Okay, perfect in knowledge. So here's a thing to do. And if you don't have Esau, download it. And what Esau does is it gives you like a King James, and it gives you this uh, word searches. And so I'll throw a Hebrew word out there, and you could say, oh, perfect in knowledge. Let's, Let's see how this word is used in the Old Testament, and you'll click there. Oh, so Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Oh, Noah's perfect. So so uh, words, words aren't consistently used where every, everywhere they're used, they have to mean a certain things. But, but anywhere they are used, the, the way it's being used in that context is a possibility for the way it's being used somewhere else. So you see how that works? That, that language is flexible in that words can be used in multiple ways in different contexts. So just assuming hard-headedly one definition of a word onto your context that it's it's a ridiculous way to do theology to read the bible to read any literature really because language doesn't work like that and so in the same way that noah is perfect god could be perfect in knowledge that's one possibility of this text so so is he going to show from the context that this perfection of knowledge is is this immutable, eternal, unchanging, can't be affected from outside? Or is he just gonna see the word he likes? And he says, perfect. I like that word perfect. that's that's a good work. It makes makes me feel good inside and and my theology is all about perfect being and and I got this conception in my head of what the perfect God looks like. And so I like that word. and so I'll just expropriate, uh, re- repurpose this verse for my theology, even though there's nothing in context that suggests my reading is even a possible reading. Is is the word used that way definitively in any context within the Bible for this metaphysical absolute anywhere? Anywhere? Oh, I don't think so. I don't think so. So they're inventing a new meaning that they can't point to any context in which the word's actually used that way. But real quick we're we're getting probably towards the end of our podcast we'll we'll hear his point out and see if he addresses my my textual criticism my my, i'm 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 criticizing his use of language and his use of biblical context and his disuse of the context he's he's not considering how things possibly are actually being used
1: He's assuming his theology onto the text. Uh, we're just, uh, I, I like that he's hes actually just asking him to consider things that are right there in front of him. This is quite, this is empirically accessible. A couple, a uh, week before last, we were in Arizona um, visiting family and, and spending some time uh, with some uh, Reformed Baptist uh, friends from uh, Gilbert, Arizona, and uh, driving around Arizona in, in the Late, late July, when you get these monsoon sto- storms, is fantastic because you just have, you're driving along and you can see you can see 40 miles in every direction driving through the desert and you can watch the you can watch the storms gathering over mountains off in the distance and then making their way out across the desert and the the lightning bolts are not obsc- you know in, in Pennsylvania the, in New Jersey we get these great storms but you you got to hope that some trees are not blocking it because we're we're just thick in the trees here you're out there in the desert and you're watching the lightning you know strike the ground and there's nothing obscuring it and there's it's a nice story It's a
0: nice story but what's so with the weather stories with calvinists i don't know know that you
1: don't get that same urban glow that we get up here in the northeast corner and so everything just comes out with a kind of unusual almost you know national geographic like brilliance um this is except access- this is there for you to look at these are things that you can see that you can observe that you can contemplate and yet even here there is this kind of wonder in Elihu's challenging Job with this. He's not asking him about uh, subatomic particle physics here. He's just asking him about things that everyone sees when they go out and see a storm. And yet, even in this, there is the is sense that the one behind all this, the one who brings this about, has a, has a perfection of knowledge uh, that is on display in these wonders of nature. He, sa- he calls them the wonders of the so yeah that we also need to keep in mind that
0: just because a text says God can control lightning or God can control the weather or he does control weather and does control lightning that doesn't mean he controls all lightning, all weather all the time. That's a it's a very forced conclusion and and there's no there's you're not going to find any Bible verses that talk about him controlling weather at all times everywhere. And we had the podcast that we did. I like this podcast. I put a lot of effort into jazzing up uh, the YouTube video on this podcast with uh, pictures and references and stuff like that. It's a good podcast, but it's on, does God control the weather? No, he doesn't control the weather. He can. He can control the weather. And there's biblical verses that describe him as controlling the weather, but it's, you can't jump from there to claiming God controls all weather everywhere Always, especially in the face of uh, counterexamples that you could find, but go there, uh, go to that podcast if you care about that subject and listen to "If God Controls the Weather." I don't, I don't think, I don't think like the the Houston Houston Hurricane. Oh, God controlled that. He just really didn't like Houston, and so he oh, smite smite Houston. Boom, gone. I don't think so, but but
1: so let's go on one perfect in knowledge. the nature is not an enigma to God. I, I would like to maybe even take this as an opportunity to say then that when we think about God's knowledge of the created order we don't want to think about God uh, as a kind of cosmic scientist, a, a sort of a sort of Einstein to the nth degree. Um, What makes Einstein or Newton as physicists uh, brilliant is that they contemplated and thought through the implications of what they were observing in nature and drawing certain law-like conclusions from that. Um, That's not how God knows nature. God God is not perfect in knowledge regarding nature because he has figured out how to connect all the dots, all the cause-effect relations that produce the phenomena that we observe. That's not how God knows nature. He knows, He knows nature not as some product of discovery. Um, what, what is this? This guy. Okay,
0: so I think that his point is that God's nature, knowledge of nature, is like inherent in His being. What would the open theist say? Well, God designed the world and creations, so of course He would understand how nature works. And and this guy's strawman argument for the counter idea of how God would know nature is that he's a scientist doing experimentation to figure out how the nature works. So I, I don't know, is there anyone who takes that belief? May, maybe there is, but you got, you got to provide examples if you're building this, this straw man, which you're going to contrast
1: your own beliefs against this straw man. That's how Newton and Einstein know nature. That's how you know nature. Okay, this, you just know it less than they did, but you know it the same way they did. You get your knowledge the same way they get theirs. They're just, you know, doing things with it. You're not. Um, but that's. But God isn't like that. Just more so. Okay, God is- And this this proof text by Elihu,
0: the great philosopher theologian, who is a great guy to quote. This guy Elihu agrees with my idea of God's perfection and knowledge because of this one little phrase which we, we've already shown the Bible doesn't use the word perfect in that way that's being forced on this text.
1: is isn't just the cosmic ultimate observer of nature. His knowledge is perfect. It lacks nothing. It's perfect as the idea of complete. In, in scripture, this is not so much talking about moral perfection at this point, but perfection, the sense of completeness, that which is without remainder, that which doesn't have a loose end, that which is not in any way, in any respect, lacking. Um, God's perfection, God is the one who's perfect in knowledge, he says. Then with respect to God, now we've kind of, that's the big macro uh, thing. Also with respect to God's knowledge of man, God is not lacking in knowledge. We might say, well, you know, knowing nature, knowing the observable empirical phenomena of things, that's, you know, that's no big shakes. We can do that. Uh, we also find that God knows man perfectly, and man is, there's a mystery to man that in in a certain sense exceeds the mystery of the physical universe in that the mystery of man... man- I'm going to pause real quick. So this word, perfection, the perfect,
0: we remember he just described it, and we're going to end the podcast on
1: this, but let, let's hear that description again. He says... Then with respect to God, now we've kind of, that's the big macro. Knows, jump back. He knows nature not as some product of discovery. That's how Newton and Einstein know nature. That's how you know nature. Okay. You just know it less than they did, but you know it the same way they did. You get your knowledge the same way they get theirs. They're just, you know, doing things with it you're not. Um, but, that's, but God isn't like that just more so. God isn't just the cosmic ultimate observer of nature. His knowledge is perfect; it lacks nothing. It's perfect as the idea of complete. Without okay, perfect as the di- idea of complete; it lacks nothing. And in, in Scripture, this is not so much talking about moral perfection. It's not talking about moral perfection. This point, but perfection—the sense of completeness. That
0: perfection in the sense of completely completeness. Okay, so. So in Job, this word is used multiple times, and it is used of Job. It literally is uh, Job twelve four. I, I am as one mocked of his neighbors who calls upon God, and He answers him. The just upright man is laughed to scorn. So he's saying, I am that perfect man, and and Duzel, He's saying this word means perfect, pure perfection, and he's he's bringing in. A lot of assumptions, a lot of assumptions that he doesn't get from the context, and it's just he's desperate. He's desperate for a proof text, and it's, it's not this. It's not this phrase. This phrase has nothing to do with his theology. There's nothing in context that suggests that theology, and so it's, it's just interesting how he uses these proof texts.
1: Which is without remainder, that which doesn't have a loose end.
0: Uh, there's, there's no remainder in Job's perfection. There's no loose end in Job's perfection. That
1: which is not in any way, in any respect, lacking. Job's perfect,
0: Job's perfection is not in any way lacking. Um, God's perfection.
1: God is the one who's perfect in knowledge. And Job is
0: the one who's perfect. He says...
1: Then with respect to God, now we've kind of, that's the big macro uh, thing. Also with respect to God's knowledge of man, God is not lacking in knowledge. We might say, well, you know, knowing nature. No-
0: All right, we're going to have to cut off there. We're already at like, like an hour. So it's like, oh. <laughs> but I like this guy. I like this podcast. I like this guy's sermons. I, it's it's interesting. He's straightforward. He says what he means. He's an honest guy. And and if you really want to understand what open theists are up against, what what this competing theology, what the competing metaphysics is, this is the guy to explain it. You're not going to hear these sermons about the nature and type and the mechanisms for God's omniscience. You're not going to hear that from James White or or Matt Slick. You might hear snippets here and there, but they're not going to go in detail on the metaphysical basis for their beliefs. And and all of their theology is based inherently on these Platonistic ideas of perfection, how this perfection must work for God to be God. And then you see them, like uh, Duelzel does, just desperately grasping for proof text. They're, they're, They're desperate for the Bible to confirm what they've already decided in their own head, even though there's nothing in the context to support that. And all their assumptions on the words and phrases being used it, it's a double standard because those phrases and words are used about human beings throughout the Bible. And it's used like God knows all things. Well, Jesus knew all things, but there's there's a date and time that he didn't know. So maybe, maybe your understanding of knows all things is uh, forced on the text. It's, it's not being used how the author was using that. So you got a little bit more work to do to show your citations, show your thought process, and not make jumps in logic. But I like this guy. Uh, we might continue on on a later podcast. We're, we'll definitely be quoting him, especially to other Calvinists who don't understand their own metaphysics. So this is, this guy's great. Very quotable. Very quotable. But, all right. Any questions or comments, send that to godisopenquestions at gmail.com.